Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, Please stick around, and if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener-supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. My guest this week is Ryan Ford. Ryan is one of the earliest adopters of parkour in North America and probably the first person to start teaching parkour here. His parkour programs through Apex Movement have become some of the most successful around. Um, and he's one of the most interesting people for me to talk to about the technical aspects of parkour, about how to develop athletes, how to train them both on physically, mentally, technically. Um, so. Lately, our podcast has been very focused on the sort of philosophical side, and I wanted to bring Ryan on, someone who can get us really into the meat of the practical side. So this is actually a really fun conversation. I super enjoyed having Ryan on, and uh, I look forward to sharing this conversation with you. Before we do that, I just wanted to mention that Return of the Source, which is our premier event of the year, has just had a couple spots open up because a few people had to cancel for various reasons. So if you're interested in that, you should get in touch with me as soon as possible because this is an event that fills up very rapidly. So um, yeah, if you're interested in that, just go to evolvemoveplay.com and uh, look up Return of the Source. We'll put that in the show notes and we look forward to you. So without further ado though, Ryan Ford. So welcome on the podcast, Ryan. It's really great to have you. So I thought that um, I'd share a little story. So the last time that I hung out with Ryan uh, was what, 2013, 2014? Really? That long ago? It feels like, man, that's a long time ago. We spent a lot of time together, but the last time we got together, I remember we stayed up late into the night um, analyzing broad jump videos using the latest software that you'd found. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And that's kind of like how I think about you is, is as one of the few guys in the community who, who really likes to geek out deeply on the kinesiology and physiology and, and, um, and everything to do with with how we build the skills of an athlete and how we build the physical attributes of an athlete that are going to allow them to do that. So that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast today. So um, I'm curious just to start with, you are like, you may be the godfather of parkour in, in North America, in the States, right? You've been doing it for how long now? Uh, I think I started 2004. So there might be like Frosty or a few other people a little bit okay. earlier than that. But yeah, it was... One of the Colorado scene, I've seen it grow from basically just me to probably thousands of people now. Mm -hmm. So you you were one of the the top athletes in the beginning of the scene. I remember your videos early on, super smooth. You were uh, I think you were the first guys in the states to get invited onto Urban Free Flow. Is that correct? Um, the actual team, I was never on that, but I used to do a little bit of like writing and stuff for them. Okay. Um, but yeah, actually, back then it was. Definitely not as hard to be a top athlete. 
So yeah, I, I used to be good, but uh, the people who are good nowadays definitely surpass me in many ways. For sure, for sure. I mean, that's just the nature of a sport going from an extremely small talent pool to a very large one. Yeah. But uh, so you've been doing this for uh, 15 years. Um, and you, you know, you kind of had that period where you were one of the premier athletes and then had to step back from that. You had injuries in your ankles. They were holding you back. And then you've, you know, you've been busy building. How many apex movements are there now? Yeah. So I guess the reason I kind of stepped back is a few reasons. I think maybe a little bit of burnout, but also shifting more of my energy into you know, developing myself as an entrepreneur, as a, you know, all these other things besides parkour. Um, I am a big fan of not just being single faceted, like just parkour. Um, I wanted to learn about strength training and entrepreneurship and technology and a lot of these other things as well. So, um, in addition to that, yes, I also did have a left knee surgery for runner's knee and I had a right ankle surgery for, um, anterior ankle impingement syndrome. So I did 10 years of soccer. I did high school football and track and field and then 15 years of parkour. And I didn't even know what mobility was until I was like early twenties and I had extremely tight ankles. And I think that led to a lot of my injuries and issues. Um, but yeah, nowadays I am actually getting back into training and it's, it's definitely more just for fun and for myself nowadays, which is, actually a huge relief I think a lot of people tie up their identity to their their practice and their training and once they lose that or once they're not able to do it as well as they used to then it's like this whole crisis um but I nowadays I feel comfortable you know spreading myself out and developing apex school of movement which we have locations in um, the bay area Concord, california we have san diego and then we have three here in colorado i'm based at the usville location mostly which is near boulder and we also have denver and fort collins and then we're trying to build um, our online education and stuff through parkour edu which is our online platform and yeah just lots of other projects and random things here and there along the way very cool so Having been in this game for a really long time, having sort of reached a peak and had to come down from it, what does your practice look like right now? Um, it definitely changes a lot, but I think at least this past year, as I've started to get back into more of the training that I like to be doing and the frequency and all that, um, I'm having a lot of fun just running speed courses, honestly. Like go outside, find a, you know, find a few checkpoints and designate it, set the course and just run it like 10 times and see if you can get it faster. And I think that's just a really, like, I'm an objective guy. I like to measure things and I like to see myself improving on a speed course. And if you're also feeling uncreative, it's like these interesting movements just arise out of, you know, refining and running that uh, speed course over and over. So I like to do that a lot lately. And also, you know, just like the general lifting and strength training, your deadlift, your squat, um, climb ups, balance, a lot of those kind of mm -hmm. skills. So when you, uh, how, how frequently a week do you train like skills and then strength conditioning? I'd say usually I'm doing dedicated strength training like twice a week right now. And then the other training I do, it, it really depends. I'm, I'm not trying to be like, the elite athlete right now so I'm not following like a strict routine and I'm sure you know like when you're trying to run a business and like you've got a family and all these other things so 
it's probably uh, similar to my situation, which is it kind of depends on the week. Um, but I also get to be around a lot of amazing athletes all the time. So I'll jump in with them and try to keep up and just have some fun. And it's definitely a little more playful nowadays. It's like I said, for fun and for fitness, mostly for my training. Um, but I'm still really into the idea of helping others attain their goals, um, whether that's winning speed competitions or trying to get into, you know, the sub industry or performances or developing them as a coach or, you know, all these kind of things. I, I would almost rather help somebody else reach this, reach this high level than pursue it myself at this point. Okay, cool. So that's something that that's interesting to me that I specifically wanted to talk to you about. Um, so I guess the last time that I was hanging out with you, it seemed like you had pretty much stepped away from coaching completely, which I think happened to a lot of the leaders of the community as we developed businesses and we ended up having to administrate, run and be entrepreneurs. Um, it was easy to sort of pass the coaching on to younger coaches and sort of get out of the game. Um, but since that time, I've noticed your you've been really, it looks like you've been really trying to put your skin back in the coaching game to some degree. You've been wanting to experiment yeah. with things and yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah. First off, I'd say I never really stepped completely away from coaching. Okay. Uh, I've, I've run, I think like 20 or 30 coaching certifications at this point and we do those every few months. So for the past, you know, six, eight years, I think, um, I'm doing that. And that's like 24 hours of coaching packed into three days, which right. as you probably know, is it can be very draining. Yeah, absolutely. But even if I'm not teaching like the regular, you know, classes at apex, I was still doing those. I've still been doing random, um, seminars here and there. And then actually lately starting in last December, we launched a parkour strength program at apex Louisville for the first time ever. So that was kind of and I'm still teaching that twice a week, Tuesday, Thursday. Um, it's more aimed at, so most of the classes at Apex are more like 80% skill training with 20% physical training, um, a little like a short workout thrown in at the end or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're trying to flip that with the parkour strength program. It's more based on the physical training. It's more like 80% physical training, but with 20% skills kind of mixed in there as well. And particularly the keystone skills I find for parkour to be um, at least the strength-based skills, your climb up for upper body pull and push. You've got jumping and landing for your legs and then rail balancing. I really like just kind of as a general foot placement and awareness and accuracy and all that, that can carry over into everything. So we're doing a little bit of that in every parkour strength class, plus a little bit of lifting, like your deadlift squat, weighted chin, weighted dip, um, kind of things, um, mobility work. And so, yeah, at this point, I'm having a lot of fun kind of uh, taking everything that I developed in all these separate programs, like a power training program or climb up programs, um, what I've created online over the years, and then what I wrote in my book, Parkour Strength Training, kind of taking all that and applying it into building an actual program. Um, and it's more aimed at adults as well. So we've got people of all ages. We've got people who are overweight, who are older, who are you know, super beginner versus we've got some who are 40, 50 years old and actually like killing it now and yeah. they can all train together. And I found ways to similar to CrossFit. I'm, I've just been looking for all these ways. How can I scale a climb up, up and down? How can I scale jumping and landing on a little, you know, ground rail? Yeah. Um, 
how can I scale our loop things? And I think that's missing in a lot of parkour training still nowadays. Um, it's getting better, but yeah, it's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, you've always had a really, I would say, unique voice on that. You've always been really good at breaking things down. Like, I, you know, I remember, um, I don't know if you, is Demon Drills still on YouTube? That is, I think, the URL. That's URL. like the okay. name. I don't know if you can change that, but okay. I haven't really touched the YouTube stuff for a few years now. Yeah, so I remember you're the first person to that I remember who broke down the the split step for a Kong ball mm -hmm. and offered a progression for that. You're also the first person to um, to introduce the idea of using a uh, a soft implement to do an underbar underduct right yeah, duct tape and rope and stuff like that yeah and we still use those those are really you know foundational things that i think people probably there's probably coaches all over the world who are using elements of the of the kong progression that you developed that have no idea where it came from um so so that's cool that you're still kind of going back and harvesting that um i saw a post you put up yesterday of just putting two rails together for a uh for a progression. So what are you kind of seeing as like, what are your latest discoveries for scaling things that you don't think that people um, broadly are aware of that would help people kind of um, progress in their practice more effectively? Um, as far as like what kind of movements or examples? What kind of, yeah. What kind of, um, what kind of drills are you developing? What kind of modifications or uh, progressions have you recently discovered that you're really excited about? Yeah, I guess, so I'll continue talking about that in the context of like the Parker Strength Program. So mm -hmm. these are gonna be examples, not necessarily to build the highest level athlete, but um, more so for the beginners and how to scale things up and down, which I think that the beginner group is the largest group of pretty much anything. And yeah. they're traditionally very neglected in parkour. Mm -hmm. um, so that was always one of my things as well as, hey guys, we gotta remember the beginners because they're the ones that are gonna support this entire community and industry and everything. Um, yeah. So yeah, like the example you just gave where I, I took two ground rails and kind of slid them together to create a rail that's like um, double the width basically. And I had never really seen anyone doing that. And I've been using that as a progression a lot in my parkour strength classes lately. And so I was just like, hey, I should. Actually, I second guessed myself. I was not gonna post that because I thought it was stupid and obvious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I held on to it for a few weeks until I got around to posting it. And then it got, it was pretty well received. People were like, oh my God, that's so obvious. Like I never thought about that, but um, thank you for doing that. So yeah. yeah, I'm trying to find those little progressions. I think that are missing from people's training. How can we progress people through these things more quickly, but also safely. And I think maybe one other big one that comes to mind is the running, jumping, climb up progression. So climb ups are traditionally a thing. I think that, you know, most people, they, they just they get on the wall, they hang there and then they just try to pull up and they usually end up doing all upper body. Um, they're not using any skill. And if you don't, if you can't do a, a couple pull ups or a couple dips, you're probably not going to be able to do it. Yep. So I was always looking for ways like how can I scale that up and down? And so the short version of how I would describe this progression um, that I've come up with for climb ups, which I find to be very effective is I teach people the running climb up first, which is you get away from the wall. So you find this head high wall, take a few steps back, and then you get three steps on the ground. And we're looking for 
Um, in my case, I would go right step on the wall, left step on the wall, right foot kick, two foot landing up on top. So I'm adding this running momentum into the climb up, but I'm specifically focused on the same footwork pattern that's going to apply when we do it on a cat hang. Yeah. So, um, over time, we start with that three-step approach. Then we go to two steps. And we start taking away steps so that the run-up is less. We have less momentum to help us. And then you're doing a jumping climb up, um, which would be kind of like people learn jumping pull-ups and jumping muscle-ups. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get a little bit of a jump assist, but I'm – I'm in that cat hang position with one foot on the wall, one foot on the ground. And this is why you need a head high wall or a wall that's, you know, the right size for you. So you can jump off that bottom foot yeah. and still drill the same footwork, um, get a little bit of extra help from that jumping assist and then, you know, do your climb up. And then once we've got all that, uh, you know, we're able to work the same exact skill or technique that people need when they apply it in a cat hang on the wall. Um, but if they didn't have those strength components already, they still get to drill that. Rather than in the past, people were like, oh, well, you don't have the strength for it. I guess good luck or, you know, keep trying. So yeah. the final progressions, I think, are, are pretty big. I think climb-ups are getting a lot more respect nowadays, um, even attention from people outside of the parkour community. Mm-hmm. And that excites me because I think they're just, like, far more useful and realistic than a muscle-up on rings or bar, for example. Yeah. Though I, 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 I've trained primarily in the woods and, um, and muscle-ups are muscle-ups and kips are more common than climb-ups, right? Because you never yeah. run into a flat wall with a flat top, right? Yeah. That makes sense in the natural so, environment for sure. You know, you're kind of here. And so you're either, it's either, um, more like a muscle-up where you really have to rely on your upper body or it's like a vault where you're jumping off your legs cause you have enough of a slope. But, yeah. uh, but, but that's least- the, at least in the urban setting nowadays, and I think there's some statistics like half of the world's population lives in an urban setting at this point. Yeah, yeah. Gates, fences, walls, they're everywhere. Yeah. In the urban setting, do you find a bar or rings? Like almost. (laughs) Certainly not rings, right? Um, (laughs) I'm trying to to imagine a situation where, where rings hanging down would be the thing that you would need to overcome to actually get onto something. Um, yeah, I mean, you got Muscle Beach, but that's about the only thing that comes to mind for me. Yeah, but I guess the idea with the rings is that they donate well to other tasks because they allow you to move through specific ranges of motion and challenge the nervous system through uh, through the instability of the rings. So, do you use ring muscle ups to assist with your climb up training, or how do you kind of view the relationship between these three skills? Yeah, so at least in the sparkler strength class, I definitely bias most of the training to the wall. Um, mm-hmm. I find that to be most useful in parkour. Um, I'm still a big fan of bar and ring muscle-ups, despite the, the amount of shit yeah, that yeah. I talk on them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> However, I guess, yeah, I don't, I don't use them a ton anymore. Um, I find, I've actually found, and I have some case studies lately that I've written up. Um, one of these is in my climb-up program on parkour edu. But I had one case study of bringing somebody's climb up from like pretty bad to really good in just like five or six weeks. And on top of the climb up getting much better, they got their first ring muscle up like right around the same time, even though they weren't actively training the ring muscle up as much as the climb up on the wall. Mm -hmm. So I think most people, at least nowadays, we've seen people get their muscle up on bar or rings first and then they're like, oh, what's this climb up thing? And they usually do pretty well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but this was the first time I saw it in reverse, which was somebody who dedicated all their training to climb ups and actually got a ring muscle up um, accidentally out of that as well. Yeah, that was actually a conversation I had with uh, Duncan Germain, uh, TK17 uh, from back in the day, where he found that you know basically if people learn climb the parkour climb up, the the muscle ups um, in other settings became very easy to learn, and you didn't. We were sort of looking at at strength training with a bar or rings is like a necessary ancillary to develop the upper body strength before we applied it. Um, and he was arguing that, you know, uh, we could just use the wall cause that was our context. Um, yeah. and then, and then if you want to go and, and get some extra strength here and there from, uh, from other things, then, you know, it, it's relatively easy once you have that well established. Yeah. I think you can go both ways and, Actually, that brings up another kind of interesting, I guess, paradigm shift. A lot of people think that, you know, you hear these strength coaches or you read this in somewhere, like nobody even knows where these rumors started, but you've probably heard like, you're not allowed to do plyometrics until you can squat double your body weight. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a bunch of crap because I've Mm -hmm. seen elite parkour athletes. Like I was literally the one to teach Dylan Baker and Jake Smith how to deadlift. Mm-hmm. And on their very first day of deadlifting, which was many years into their parkour journey already, they both maxed out over 400 pounds. And we were being like conservative. We're like, okay, the form is starting to go a little bit, so we'll just stop there. Like they could have pushed it a lot harder. Yeah. And so what I learned from that and what I've learned over the years since then is that um, you can use weightlifting to prepare yourself for plyometrics, but you can also develop insane leg strength through just plyometrics and parkour training. Um, obviously you have to pay attention to mechanics and form and mobility and all these other things, but um, it can be done either way, I think. Yeah. I, I, so I've been kind of paying attention to a lot of uh, stuff coming out of the track world. And I don't know, like I remember that was a big thing we talked about back in the day in the, the as parkour kind of started to get hip to some strength conditioning stuff was like, maybe it was coming out of CrossFit. I don't know where I was coming out of, but we all had this idea that like plyometrics were the super dangerous thing um, until you had these prerequisites of strength, which are also like, you know, when you start, when you start getting a little more sophisticated idea of strength, you realize that like two times body weight for a squat is a really arbitrary measurement because the amount of force that that equals at the knee for an athlete who's six foot one and, and 130 pounds and has very long legs is very different from an athlete who's five foot five and 130 pounds and has short legs. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an absolute number, but as far as the pre- preparation of the athlete, it's actually fairly arbitrary. But beyond that, um, I don't even think most sprinters and jumpers, I, I, I bet you couldn't find a, you, you'd be hard pressed to find a high jumper in the world who could do a double body weight squat, I bet. Um, and they don't, they don't squat at all. Uh, I was just reading Franz Bosch. He's saying, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll rarely see these guys put up heavy weights in the, in the weight room. Yeah. For high jumpers, the weight, the develop, the, the muscular development that comes from heavy weightlifting uh, actually counteracts the development of what they need. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've, we've learned a lot since those early days in, in how we apply strength conditioning. 
Yeah, that, that brings to mind another pretty interesting example. This guy named John Reynolds. Are you familiar with him? I'm not familiar with John Reynolds. So we used to call him Baby John back in the day of early parkour community here in Colorado. And he would train in Dillon on the rooftops in Cherry Creek and, you know, some of that legendary stuff that you probably heard about. But um, this guy grew into like a six foot three, six foot four, um, super jacked, like state championship level. I think he won the state championship two or three times in high jump, long jump and triple jump here in Colorado. Yeah, yeah. Up going to, I think it was Texas A&M and then ultimately settled at Air Force Academy on a track scholarship. And I got to work with him a little bit last summer and get a glimpse into like, he's an incredibly interesting person to talk to from my perspective because he, he knows all this stuff about parkour. And like, there are, there've been a lot of jumping landing innovations in parkour, like landing on tiny little bars yeah. or you know, these complex high to low changing angles at height. Like I think parkour has some of the most impressive, if not the most impressive jumping landing athletes in the world. Yeah, I agree completely. And so he knows and understands all of that and actually used it. Um, he did parkour first and then really got into track and field and applied kind of that, that parkour base to becoming an elite level, you know, jumper. And um, same thing that you were kind of saying when I, I got to shadow and film some of his workouts and he was doing like step ups, but with very little range of motion. Mm -hmm. and, and that was one thing I was kind of interested to see. And I had mixed feelings at first because he wasn't using much range of motion on his squats or his lifts like that. Um, but then it makes sense. Like when you watch a triple jumper, they're not going through that much range of motion. So maybe it's not going to be useful for them to develop that. Yeah. And they need, you know, uh, a lot of the the guys I've talked to from the track and field community, they don't squat very deep um, because the their their hips just never drop that far, and they don't really want them to drop that far. They want that stiffness, and they have to replicate these extraordinarily high loads. Like people, um, people don't realize that if you can long jump twenty five feet, you just can't replicate that type of force in the weight room very effectively at all. Like you're talking. 12 times body weight potentially going through your hip. So if you put the type of weight on your back that you can take through a full range of motion squat, especially if you're a lanky guy, which most of the best jumpers are, uh, right. the likelihood that that's going to be stimulating adaptions that are similar to what you need for the squat is it's relatively minimal. Um, I think for parkour athletes, on the other hand, we have to take drops yep. and, um, there's still a point of where you're getting negative carryover or a point where it's not necessarily what you need, but it can be really useful to get as a training tool to get the strength in those deep range of motions that we need. Yeah. I, the way I kind of see it is like defensive versus offensive training, like mm -hmm. in parkour, we take insane amounts of impact potentially. And the better you are at dispersing that impact or absorbing that impact, um, potentially the more kind of like bulletproof or resilient you're going to be, um, you yeah. might have some injuries. So yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of people in parkour, they have amazing squats, um, like from not just a mechanical perspective, but their, their number, their body weight ratio, it's mm -hmm. way higher than you might expect, even if they don't actively do squats that often. Yeah. And I think the, 
yeah, I kind of see it as like the squat is for the landings and the deadlift and some of these other things are more for the jumps. Foot squat. Yeah. yeah. Step up. Yep. Yeah, foot squat. Yeah. So one thing I found with myself and some of the athletes that I trained, and I've, I've heard some track and field coaches talking about this as well, is that I felt like when I did a lot of squatting and deadlifting, um, it shifted my body. And this is partially technique, but it shifted my body towards developing a lot of force through my spinal erectors. My spinal erectors got really, really big and strong. Um, but that's not an optimal uh, thing to rely on for jumping and uh, um jumping and running patterns, right? You want more of your force to actually be generated by your legs. Mm-hmm. So I know that some of the guys are using like a K box. Like if you look at uh, a lot of the, a lot of the track and field coaches really like it if they can load directly at the hips and sort of circuit around the spine. Um, not all the time because you want the spine and the torso to be strong too. But if you're, um, you don't want to essentially overdevelop the torso in relationship to the legs and the deadlift and the squat um, are always force limited by the torso more than the legs. So I wonder what your take on that, uh, that is, or how you've kind of, if you've noticed that trend and how you've worked with that with your athletes. Hmm. I think, I guess some thoughts to come to mind. You're, are you kind of also getting at the like hip dominant versus knee dominant jumper? Or um, not so much, right? Uh, like that's that's one way of thinking about it. But so you like you can talk about um, hip versus knee dominant, right? And someone who's spinal erector dominant is is going to look more like a hip dominant athlete, right? Because it's part of the posterior chain: spinal erector, glute, and hamstring. Um, but you're just going to see them dip and use their their back more. When like a classic example of someone who's over relying on a spinal rector is if you're in a squat, right? You see someone squat down, and as they come up, the hips go here. Right. Yeah, and so I think I'm an example of that, and I think it's often tied to a lack of mobility as well. Yeah. Um, or potentially in the hips or the ankles. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, these are all things that I, I have to consider when. So I've I've developed a kind of like a power training program to peak our athletes um, right before a speed competition, for example, for example. Um, and traditionally in parkour, these, these events or competitions are usually given with a bit of short notice. And so you don't have the luxury of periodizing and programming, like from the whole year perspective, you're just kind of, you got to be ready to go in a shorter amount of time. And so what a lot of the athletes uh, here locally have been doing with me is we'll do like a six week power peaking program. Um, and then try to finish that with a couple weeks, um, before the event so they can, you know, recover, recuperate, um, focus, to, or shift their focus to skill training a bit more leading up to the event while maintaining the power levels as well. So when I'm looking at, um, I kind of, I start with a base template for that program and then, um, you're familiar with Sparta science and right. I think in, it might've been you that originally oh, yeah, I turned you on to them. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I love a lot of what they do. It's also kind of hard to figure out what they're doing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been tested on their force plates two times now and I've got to, you know, talk and work with them a little bit and start to figure out like, how are they figuring or how are they using this technology, um, to optimize people's training? And I don't have a force plate yet at Apex um, to go through some of the same like uh, diagnosis, but knowing what I know, um, 
if you understand the principles of that system, the Sparta Science system, and how they're determining like who does what lift and you know what position should function in what way and what force you know force time curve pattern are we looking for? Um, you can there's the load explode and drive right. So the load is like the eccentric force. How how quickly can we you know, get ready to generate the force and then the explode is how much force can you put in and then drive is how long can you generate the force so by by playing with some of these variables i'm still kind of conflicted on what's the best for parkour um because i think if you had really high drive mm -hmm. it's like the the people who when they land on rails maybe they're doing plyos or strides between rails um yeah. they're able to kind of like land and like be on there longer with a lot of control and it almost like widens their margin for error which i think is a really great thing to have in parkour however it's not going to be the best way to do it on a speed course um so for the speed course athlete they're looking more at like ideally you don't really absorb at all on that rail you just like hit it and you're off yeah. and so that would be more kind of like uh, training the deadlift whereas the deep squat like split squats um, kind of mobility training where you're learning to generate force over a longer period of time. I think this has a lot of value for maybe the, the resiliency or like longevity. Um, thinking about myself, like when I land on a rail wrong and I like tweak my ankle or sure. you know, I'm not great at um, dispersing that force over a long period of time because I don't have a lot of range of motion to work with. Yep. And if I did have more range, I think um, if I could use that well, it'd be a lot more sustainable longevity would be a thing. So I don't know where I'm going with is I think parkour athletes, it, you always have to get even more specific than that because parkour is so open-ended. It's like, okay, what's the best way for a parkour athlete to train? Well, okay, now I've got five or 10 more questions to ask you on what are you trying to do with parkour? Are yeah. you trying to get into Cirque du Soleil and do stunts or are you trying to be, win food comps or are you just doing it because you want to, play with your kids on the playground and be a better example as a, a parent, you know? Yeah. I mean, so all those things can, can move independently, right? Like you can get more of all of them. Uh, so I, I want to just kind of review, cause I don't think the audience know most of knows what Sparta performance science is. So you yeah. sort of reviewed it there, but let me, let me jump in there on that as well. So Sparta performance science is a facility in um, Menlo park. And they also now have, affiliates in a bunch of different collegiate and professional programs. They built their whole program based on trying to create like a really scientifically valid approach to understanding how someone produces force on the ground. And I think that's determinative of effective athletic performance. And they originally thought there would be one ideal athletic profile, like the best way to produce force. But what they found was that um, there were three primary variables that they were trying to put together. Um, which they've used a few different names. Uh, you said load, explode, drive, um, which my understanding is that if you look at someone doing a, a counter movement jump, as the hips are going down, the speed at which they can descend into the hole is what they call that loading ability, right? You're loading your body. Um, as you're extending out of it, you're, uh, you're well actually i think it's a lot about the the amortization phase when the body is between the eccentric and the concentric how much it deforms under the load that you're using um or under the load of of your body weight 
how much the knees collapse in, how much the backgrounds is, is, uh, it basically has to do with how well you're able to stabilize and how much force you're leaking at that point. So athletes who have high explode are able to stay really stiff and not change position well. And then you have drive, which is essentially the ability to go deeper into the hole and to go further into extension before leaving the ground. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, and actually I've got their, their kind of like whole prescription cheat sheet and like cueing thing right mm -hmm. here. So to further recap, because I think both of us got close. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the really short, like concise version, at least how they model this. Yeah. Um, load is the ability to create force. That's the eccentric phase, and it's more about the anterior strength. Low yeah. load athletes are going to struggle with knee flexion and poor ankle mobility. Mm -hmm. Explode is the ability to transfer force up the chain, which is we're getting into the amortization phase. This is torso stability and low explode athletes are going to leak force through the torso using or utilizing momentum. Cool. And then drive is expression of force over time. That's the concentric phase, more about the posterior strength and low drive athletes will struggle achieving the triple extension and poor thoracic mobility. Yeah. So like, um, so I'm, uh, I scored as very strong on the explode function. So I deadlift very heavily. I'm able to stay stiff in my torso. I scored moderate on the, um, on the load function. I, uh, I have strong quads and everything, but I have limited mobility. And I think I have really weak, uh, relatively weak lower legs, actually. I think my calf and, um, and feet are kind of not very strong. Um, like if I, uh, if you look at really good jumping athletes in other sports and you'd watch them just bounce on their feet, see some of these guys can bounce incredibly high without bending their knees at all. Yeah. That's something I'm really interested in right now. Whereas for me, I really have to use my hips in order to create force. So I can jump really high, but I have to get into my hips to do it. Um, and then I scored very low on the drive phase. And you can, if you watch videos of me, you can look and you can see that uh, when I take off for a jump, my hip, often doesn't even get to neutral. It stops before it's fully neutral. Whereas if you look at like uh, elite long jumpers, you'll see that the hip goes way into hip hyperextension. Yeah. So, um, yes. And I've, so I've been tested on the force plate twice now, and I've also tested with Amos, Brandon, and a few other Parker athletes. And the, the interesting thing, so I only have a sample size of like, you know, five or six people in parkour, but I find, or I'm finding that they're a little bit different than what you're saying about yourself, but um, I think in every single one of them, I saw relatively higher load and explode and very low drive. Sure. And I think that probably would be the case for most athletes in general, just because yeah. people are stiffer than they should be. Yeah. I mean, so generally like the, if you're high in load and explode, that's the profile of like a cornerback or linebacker in the NFL. Whereas athletes who are high in uh, drive, like the highest, the athletes who are highest in drive are rotational athletes like golfers and pitchers. Right. It's all about disassociating the shoulder and the hip from each other and allowing these big whipping dynamics between them. And that's not really something that we do in parkour. So it makes sense that athletes in parkour are always going to be a little bit lower in drive relative to rotational athletes and it's going to attract athletes who have those uh attributes so my i'm just uh curious what you think about this but my kind of the way that i've looked at this is 
it's not so much about what the optimal like I, I'm not so worried about trying to find the optimal force profile for a parkour athlete. I'm interested in looking at where they might have a weakness and trying to fill it in to make them more resilient to injury. Right. So what happened with me was prior to, to, to going to train at Sparta or trying getting tested at Sparta, uh, I had been following the ideas. Um, I can't remember the name of the guy, but he, he wrote a book called, uh, it was Barry Ross underground secrets to running faster. He trained Allison Felix. who's one of the greatest track and field athletes ever. And he basically said that for a sprinting athlete, like the only thing that you need is the deadlift, that the deadlift trains everything that you want. And so you just make it super simple, do some pushups, pull-ups, deadlift, you know, stretch and sprint. And so I really simplified my, my training down to doing that. Cause I was trying to to be really efficient with my training. And I'd done a bunch of CrossFit and thrown a bunch of stuff on top of my parkour training and just made myself really tired. <laughs> and, uh, but I was starting to have a lot of injuries. I went through a period with a lot of injuries between like 2009 to 2012. Um, and I felt like I had to train a lot to keep my strength where I wanted it and get my jumps to improve. Was that when you did the Achilles thing? I tore my Achilles in 2010. Gotcha. So I went there um, in 2012, I think. Uh, and, and they were like, well, you should never deadlift again <laughs> because you, you know, my, my, uh, my percentile in the like uh, professional athlete pool was 66th for, for uh, explodability um, or look. Yeah. Explodability. And it was 47th for, um, for drive. So I had a, 19 point difference and they said anytime you're above a 15 point percentile difference between one of the attributes they improve it, it makes you more likely to have an injury right so um and then the injuries that are predicted for an athlete who has insufficient drive and very high uh stiffness or uh explodability so we could say that's kind of like mobility and um and and stiffness is precisely the injuries that i was having all the time achilles tears ankle sprains, hamstring pulls, groin pulls, all your lower body injuries um, are associated with that profile that I had. So I started doing their protocol that they gave me, which was split squats, basically. Um, split squats uh, compounded with, with broad jumps. And, you know, I went back, you know, basically I cut my time spent on uh, strength training in half and my jumps improved massively and I stopped getting injured. Um, and so I've used that protocol or I've used the same principles with everyone I've done online training with. I look at their broad jump and their vertical jump and I, you know, I, I don't have objective metrics the way that they do. Um, but I, I break it down based on that idea and I try to fill in whatever's a week. Some athletes, it's like, they just need to get stronger. It doesn't really matter. Um, or some athletes have a great profile already and you're just, okay, well, you can kind of play with whatever is fun. Um, but for a lot of people you'll see, man, they really lack some stiffness and it's like a deadlift's going to be great for them. They really lack that drive component and adding in some split squatting and some mobility work and working on those ankles a lot is going to be super valuable for them. Yeah. That's what I found. Yeah. And I think, just to like reiterate on what you're talking about, like action items for anyone listening. I think 
and I'm guilty of this early on, you know, my, most of my twenties, even I'd say I, I focused a little bit more on like, Oh, what's this exercise? What's this exercise? And I'd like slowly had more and more things that I could do. And now what I'm about um, is, you know, subtracting and simplifying, like strip down all the crap. You don't need 20 different exercises in your routine. You just need the ones that are going to give you most bang for your buck. It's like the 80, 20 rule applied to training. What are the 20% of movements that'll give me 80% of the results? And so exactly what you're saying, like I'm doing a lot of, um, depending on the person, we'll pick like deadlift or squat or split squat. Um, maybe a couple other lifts I might consider, but those are the main ones. And then I like to pair those up, at least for the power development. We'll have like depth jump for distance, depth jump for height, running box jump, um, or various kind of like strides and bounds and things like that. And yeah, for legs, I mean, that's, that's pretty much all we're doing for strength and power. Add in, easy. add in a little bit of mobility, depending on like if they have tight hips or tight ankles or whatever, we'll, we'll kind of isolate that. But yeah, I think what more people need to, to remember is just like, hey, keep it simple. Like they, there are, they're just a handful of things that can give you almost everything that you need to reach your goals. So it's good to remember that. Yeah. I, I, so uh, two years after I went to Sparta, I like just decided to deadlift and I, you know, I put 365 pounds on the bar and it came up real easy. And then I was like, yeah, I don't really need to prove myself anymore. Like I probably could have pulled it, but I just didn't want to get into the grindiness. And I was like, if I could not deadlift for two years and still pull 365, I don't think that I really need it. You know, <laughs> it's not the thing for me and I'm, I'm staying strong. So I've actually been meaning to like make an Instagram post about that. I'm going to do a heavy deadlift and just say like, here's why I don't do it, but you might want to, because it might be the right thing for you. Yeah. And this is the thing that I, that I'm really interested in is, um, the, the, you know, the best lift or the best training program is always specific to the individual athlete. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So if I walk in to your class, uh, to your strength class and I have a goal to, you know, say just generally improve at parkour or maybe let's let let's make it more specific i want to be a good speed course competitor right okay i want to be good at speed courses i come into your class like what are you looking at to try to determine what is the right thing and then how do you manage a group of people so that they're working on stuff that's relevant to them yeah so i guess first off i'd say the strength class definitely is or the one I'm talking about earlier is more kind of beginner oriented. Um, most of these people are not anywhere close to the, the time in their training of considering like speed competitions. Um, although I do have a few of them who just, they jump in here and there just to get a little more um, training when they can. Um, but what I'm, I guess, so I kind of have that and then I have a handful of others um, other athletes who I work with, it's kind of a mix of we'll train together, we'll train one-on-one, -on -one, and also I trust a lot of them to kind of take care of their own workouts that I prescribe them, and then they just do it, um, you know, whenever works best for them. And these are the higher level ones, usually, who would be doing speed competitions. Um, so does that change your question at all? Like, which, which group are you? More um, break it down for us. I mean, I just... Tell me what's going on for you in those things. I think either one's really interesting. Tell me what you do with the beginners and then tell me what you do with the, 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 uh, the higher level athletes. 
Yeah, so I guess for the beginners in this strength program and just in general, our kind of our training philosophy in parkour at Apex and parkour EDU is, um, I mean, we could talk for a long time about this, so I'll try to give a really short take on it. But when, when we're looking at what are the most important, like keystone skills in parkour, and I got that term, I think, from the talent code, we talk yeah, about man. keystone skills, meaning like, what are the essential building blocks or skills yeah. in any given practice that you should probably pay extra attention to. Mm-hmm. And talking about parkour, I would consider those things to be the skill of getting down safely, which includes landing, rolling, falling of all kinds, mm-hmm. um, getting up quickly, which is kind of centered around that running, jumping, climb up progression. Sure. And then kind of like precise, accurate foot placements. And I love the rails, the ground rails, especially for that. So um, you know, striding, balancing, doing two-footed jumps, one-footed jumps, all kinds of just precise footwork on very small obstacles. And when you get really good at that and you go back to the really thick walls, it's like, uh, it's kind of like you were driving at 100 miles per hour and you slow down to 50 and you're like, oh my God, this is so slow and easy. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, just, it's like a way of uh, making things really, really hard so that when you go back to the normal training, everything is kind of like way easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, getting down quick or sorry, getting down safely, getting up quickly and precise, accurate foot placement. Um, so in the strength class for the beginners and all levels, really what I'm trying to go after is how can we get your jumping landing mechanics to be better? And once they're, you know, good, how can we get it to be farther, higher, faster, whatever. And then on top of that, we pair up a lot of like the lifting with that. And then from the, the getting down safely um, aspect, landing, rolling, falling, um, that's also going to be covered by our jumping landing mechanics as well as our squat, for example. Um, and then we do a lot of like rail balancing stuff for like warmups. I think it's just a really great way to get people like working together, passing the balls back and forth or trying to mirror each other or I'll do like follow the leader. Um, just a couple of days ago, I was on the, we'll get a big circle of rails. I'm the leader. I'm speaking everyone through what we're doing. It's almost like you could do a yoga class like this. Yeah, like yeah. you had 50 rails. Mm-hmm. I could actually do a pretty cool class. I think where everybody is just trying to keep up and do all these different flows on rails. So we'll go like, all right, now we're going to squat down, put your butt on your heels, grab the bar on the outsides of your feet. Now widen your stance, put your hands on the insides of your feet. Now we're going to pivot 90 degrees into a sideways facing low squat, stand up, pivot 90 degrees facing back, you know, so I go on like that and everyone just tries to keep up. And if you fall off, you do a push up or something. And after 10 minutes of a warm up like that, you're actually like dripping sweat off your face and it's yeah, intense. So um, I like to do a lot of the rail balance stuff as well. I think that's also good for accumulating just more like odd positions, more strength and mobility in your ankles and your knees and things like that. Um, So yeah, those are really kind of like the first principles of what we're doing. And then when I'm talking about the athletes who are kind of like rising up out of that and onto like more difficult, um, more customized training, um, because maybe they want to win the speed competitions or they want to do, you know, some higher level goal. Um, that's when we get into a little bit more of like the power training peaking programs, like I was mentioning before. So these people are going to start doing more lifting. They're going to usually pair that lifting up with an explosive exercise. 
right after. So that's that idea of like complex training. Yeah. Um, I usually try to pair up a explosive movement that mimics the one that the lift that they just did. So like uh, deadlift, we'll go with the horizontal jumping kind of stuff, depth jump for distance. Um, whereas back squat would be more like a depth jump for height. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of that as well as just continuously trying to get the climb ups to be faster. Can we get up these things um, faster? And then at the higher levels, it really just becomes more about like more courses. It's like, uh, you need more experience. You need more, um, novelty and weird movements and like, you never know what the course is going to be in a lot of these competitions nowadays. So you have to be ready for anything. And the athletes who have a far greater like vocabulary basically that they can draw upon, um, they're typically going to do a lot better. So at the higher levels, yeah, it gets into, we covered a lot about the physical training, but then this is another huge model I use for our athletes, which is, I guess you could think of it as like tri a triangle or something, but we've got the physical component, or maybe that's like your, that's your foundation. And then we stack upon that, the skill or the technical element. And then finally, for the highest level athletes, we really want to build out the mental component, which is at, up at the top. Mm -hmm. and, um, not to say that anyone is going to train these things like just one or the other. It's sure. always going to be a little bit of a mix, but beginners are going to be more toward the physical training and the higher level athletes are going to be delving more into the technical and mental aspects as well. Like doing those um, precise, accurate foot, foot placement stuff up at height, 10 feet off the ground on tiny little bars. It's, that's one thing that's always kind of blown my mind is the people who are confident enough to, to just like be 10 feet off the ground on these tiny little bars and be like, yeah, I can hit that hundred percent of that time. So I'm going to commit hundred percent and it's no big deal. I'm just like, damn, that is, that's when you've got like good physical training, the technique is on point and you're so confident and you've been able to overcome the fear and all these things that you're just like a really well-rounded athlete at, my, at that point. So I almost consider it to be another way to look at it. It's like um, in a video game, you've got your, your character traits or your, like your ratings and scores for different categories. So kind of what you're saying before about looking for that person's weakness. Yeah. When I'm evaluating an, ath an athlete, I'll look, okay, their physical training will say is a 70. Their technical training is say an 80 and their mental training is only a 20. That tells me we're going to go after the mental aspect because they're this level of an athlete yeah. and they're reaching this level of their potential because they're scared and they're holding back because of their mind or their mental training is not there yet. Um, you could even do that with like strength, mobility, and power. Say somebody's got high levels of strength and power and their mobility is way down here, which would be me in my twenties and thirties. Um, now still kind of struggling with the ankle mobility in particular. Um, if I see that like high strength, high power, low mobility, we've got to go after the mobility more because you're going to get hurt and you're going to be out of the game. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's my story. I'm looking at when, um, depending on the person and what skill level they are. Very cool. So yeah, so we did, we spent a lot of time on the, the physical preparation stuff, which I knew we would, but the other thing that I've been interested in that you've been doing is you've been doing a lot of analysis of speed work. Um, and this yeah. is, something, well, it's a funny thing because you know, my understanding of what parkour means has changed a lot over the years. But what I thought it meant in the beginning was something like, you know, being able to get from one place to another as fast as possible, you know, through a complex environment, something like that. And, uh, and there was this huge argument about competition. And it, 
but at the same time, there was all these arguments about what would actually work. If people constantly, you know, if, if we were really doing parkour, we would just sprint and do cat leaps, right? Uh, you know, um, and, and what I think is interesting about competitions is just that they're, they're, they're real skin in the game on what movement efficiency looks like when you put together a complex environment. Um, you know, one thing that we know, like that we notice right away is for instance, uh, this is actually something Teg Matthews Palmer said that I thought was cool is he said, uh, um, everyone's already competing in parkour. They're competing for the best YouTube video. Yeah, exactly. So if you're competing for the best YouTube video, Kong vaults are, or at least until now, everyone does double front flips and stuff. But when we were young, <laughs> back in the day, if you could do a big diving Kong vault, it was really impressive to people. Yeah. And, and of all the vaults, it has the most sort of aesthetic appeal. Uh, and so when we started running courses, if we put three vault boxes in a row with room to run in between them, um, like half the, half the athletes would Kong, all of them. Um, and it turned out that that was pretty much the slowest vault that they could possibly use to go over that. Um, and, and that wasn't really, that's not obvious unless you put a clock on it and you actually try to do it. And then there's a lot of other stuff that has developed around, around that. So, so you've been, but like, uh, Yohan LaRue, you know, Yohan LaRue, right? Yeah. Super fast, incredible speed course athlete, but, um, he was competing at NAPC a couple of years ago and he chose to dive uh, vault over a rail, um, yeah. dive Kong vault over a rail when everyone else was sliding under it or striding over it. Right. And so I, I went through and I, and I timed, you know, where he was relative to everyone else before he initiated the movement and where he was after he initiated the movement. And it was by far the slowest movement that anyone shows through that particular space. Um, and then he still probably did really well. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I think that he finished second or third anyways. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was incredible. Um, but, uh, but I'm just curious, what have you been noticing? Like, what, what are you picking on? What do people not understand about actually moving at speed and what allows you to be technically proficient? Yeah, I, th I think you're right on there. Um, you used a good example, which is that vaults are generally not the fastest way. Unless yeah, vaults are for some reason forced into it. Mm -hmm. which does happen occasionally um also we've got to differentiate between what i would consider to be like legit parkour speed competitions and complex courses like what you would see you know at the apex schools or sport parkour league yeah. versus the fig um the olympic stuff that's going a whole another route where it's like side by side super simple like basically just sprinting with a couple yeah. minor technical challenges Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to talk about the first one because I think that's more interesting. And so, yeah, I guess in addition to vaults generally not being super fast way to get over stuff. Um, yeah, there's a lot more examples. And one thing I've been doing, which you can see on my Instagram, um, is I've been at a bunch of comps around here over the past couple of years with the gimbal and super slow-mo camera, yeah. like, tracking people and filming every single run which is like insane cardio having to do that over and over and over but i'm also trying to film everyone exactly the same so that i can put them up side by side yeah. and then be able to study like oh here's where this person was faster than that person but then they caught up because they did this and then passed them at the end here because this was faster yeah so i think that's like you're saying when when you get a stopwatch or like film analysis going that's really the only way you can actually objectively um, analyze some of this stuff. And 
yeah, I guess I, there's tons of takeaways and every course is unique, but a couple other things that come to mind are actually climb ups, like avoid climb ups. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Generally don't touch your hands <laughs> if you can avoid it. So a great example or comparison is um, in Denver, we've got this guy named Julian Frazier who you should look up if you haven't. He's a former division one track and field athlete who oh, is now competing at a high level in speed competitions. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he hurt his hip at the last competition, so he's out for a bit. But he's basically the he's the top tier locally now, which is saying a lot around here in Colorado. And then we've got so he's so we've got him. He's like six foot three, two hundred pounds, um, incredibly fast. Like I think he did hurdles and sprinting and jumping and yeah. And he's he's an insane athlete. We've got a seventeen year old athlete named Seth Wang us for I think like seven or eight years now since he was a kid basically and he finally got healthy this year he did a bunch of my training leading up to this and he beat Julian um by doing totally different movements in some ways Mm -hmm. Uh, but he the thing about climb ups is that if you can avoid it it's usually going to be faster, but sometimes there you have to do it. And if you don't have good climb ups, that's a huge, like, um, separation factor among a lot of the athletes. So what happened in the recent competition that we had here in Denver is the second course, the finals course with Seth and Julian kind of in first and second leading into this, um, it had some really like difficult climb ups that you could not possibly avoid. Mm -hmm. And that was where Seth Wang, um, is going to excel. And even on the the jumping, landing, like leg stuff, Seth can keep up with this guy, Julian, who's way bigger, way faster, track and field background. But Seth is just like, I don't know, man. Like you, I'm, you saw the videos. You got to watch the videos to like really appreciate what I'm saying here. Um, but then there's some other quick thoughts. is like the whole idea of landing continuums. And I think Amos calls them mission continuums. So ideally, if you're jumping a gap, you would clear the whole gap and you know, like be able to sprint out of it. But if you don't have the power, then you've got to land like in a crane or a half cat or even a cat leap. And then you have to do a climb up and all these things slow you down. Um, I think generally taking less steps or less strides, cutting out the extra wasted movements is going to help you go faster. Although that's not a hundred percent always the case. Don't overstride. Yeah. Take um, no extra strides, but don't overstride. I don't know. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think about it. What else comes to mind? It's just hard because every course is so different. And yeah, and really it, on each course, all the athletes are kind of working together to try to like solve the problem. What, so one of the things I've been working on, and maybe this is interesting to you and, and, and what will fit in for you is I've been thinking about flow, right? This concept of flow. And I've been thinking about, it's still kind of a, you can say, Oh, this guy has good flow, but that doesn't really mean very much. Right. Um, we need a little bit more, um, we need a little bit more breakdown of that. We need to atomize that idea a little bit. So I've been sort of trying to break out principles. What makes one guy's flow look good, right? And then if you think about effectiveness, flow isn't even the entirety of what makes someone effective because you have speed and power. So I suspect when you're looking at like Seth versus Julian, you're looking at an athlete who has more speed and power versus an athlete who can uh, harvest more efficiency through being in the right position and probably changing his direction more quickly. It's an agility thing. Um, so when I think about flow, I talk about rhythm, uh, displacement, direction, 
structure and decision making. Mm. Right. So when you're, when you're running, that's a basic gate pattern, right? Um, when you do a Kong vault, that's a new rhythmic pattern. When you do a, a, a jump, it's a new rhythmic pattern. When you do a underbar, it's a new rhythmic pattern. So what happens a lot is if an athlete is, is really not as developed as they could be, they'll have interference in, say, the gate of the run prior to the vault because the brain is preparing this new rhythmic pattern. And then there's also this, this aspect of, so if you're running, the cadence is easy to control. But when you're running and preparing to do a jump, now you have to steer your body through a set of adjustments in your cadence and in your tempo and in the distance of your steps. And so your ability to do that intelligently is huge. If you're, if you're running up and you say I have seven steps to do a run up, right? Um, if you make small adjustments on each step, um, then you can have a very smooth acceleration into the jump. If on the other hand, you, don't grok where you need to be and how to set yourself up there until you're quite close to the object. You're going to have to make a major shift in your running pattern at some point. So you're either going to have a major stutter step or a major overstride to get yourself in the right position to finish those last few jumps. And that's going to be a big deceleration and disorganization of your pattern. Um, so your ability to control your tempo and your cadence and your ability to to, mit, to move very effectively between these, uh, uh, these rhythmic patterns is huge. So that's one element. The next element is, uh, is what I call the, the, the displacement. Basically, if you're, displacement and directionality are really closely related, but displacement is basically not moving up or down more than is necessary. Right. So like a Kong vault tends not to be very effective for going over a single medium-sized obstacle because it displaces your hips very high and it has a very different rhythmic pattern than, than a run. A hurdle is extremely effective because it's a small variation on the running pattern that has the lowest displacement possible over the object. Right. Directionality is the direction of your inertia and your ability to control that. A hurdle is great if you're running in a straight line out of it. You have a perf perfectly straight directionality but it's actually very difficult to control directionality in any other direction other than forward out of a hurdle. Um, a, a step vault, a lot of people don't seem to recognize this, but you need to be really good at step vaulting on both sides because step vaults naturally circle you to one side. And if you're going into a step vault on one side and you're going to try to circle out the, the other way, you're going to end up um, in a, in a much more difficult position to, to harvest your momentum and keep going. So you have what I call directional um, errors, directionality errors. Um, and that actually I missed one, which is perception. And this is really big. And this is something that I think might explain like uh, someone like Seth Wang outperforming someone like Julian, the experience and you talked about this, the experience that you have of going through these courses over and over again, allows you to piece together where everything is in space move your eyes through the space as you're moving in an efficient way. If you watch beginners do parkour, um, when they're preparing for an object, you'll see their eyes hard focus on it. So now there's a perceptual lag before they can react to the next thing behind it while their eye adjusts up. Right. So you have to be able to hold things in space and then you have to be able to anticipate where you're going to have to be looking 
and controlling your center of mass as you're landing. And so that ability to react quickly by having your eyes in the right places is really big. And also the movement choices that you make are really important in your ability to apply your perceptual abilities correctly. Anything that spins you or inverts you is really cool as a training tool um, to make you better at perceptual control, but really bad as an application um, because it's, it's just harder to, to land a front flip and know what's happening <laughs> or a reverse vault. Yeah. Yeah. Perceptual and then structural, which is uh, putting, as you go through one obstacle course, one obstacle set or problem, right? Are you able to move in such a way that you're able to continually put yourself in good structural positions that allow you to apply power to the ground or to right. the object? Um, and so a lot of times an athlete, you know, makes a, a bad decision that puts them in a place where their body can't produce power or because they have a mobility lack, they can't move through that, uh, that the necessary movements and end up organizing their structure to move them forward. And then the last one is just that like, not, not doing strides on rails when you don't have precision to do strides on rails, for instance. Yeah. Or confidence. Confidence. So that's kind of the schema that I've been looking at. So I think it'd be really interesting to go back and look at that footage and study and say, okay, you know, is this, is the difference that we're seeing here between this athlete and this athlete because this athlete is perceptually more attuned because this athlete has better control of directionality, better control of rhythm. And then when you're looking at uh, like bringing in an athlete who's a former, um, you know, division one track athlete. Now you have someone who's got so much more power and speed to apply generally. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I, I haven't, broken it down in some of those ways, but it makes a lot of sense to me. I think um, this, this kind of goes back to a lot of the ways I think about it is like the, the charts, the graphs yeah. with different attributes of a person rated at different things. Yeah. And I think to be, nowadays to be a top level speed course runner, if I were to have physical, technical, mental, and if I were to break down each one of those even more, like take the physical one and break it down into like strength, power, mobility, take the technical one and break it down into like jumping, climbing, vaulting, yeah. take the mental one and uh, break that down into like strategy. Um, aggressiveness is a huge one. So Seth um, versus Michael Sliger, who's another one of the guys I've been training and he got second place um, behind Seth and they both are so similar in their overall outcome of like time. Yeah. But they tend to do things in very different ways. And Seth is a bit more aggressive. I was just talking to these guys about it a couple of nights ago. And Michael Seiger, he self-proclaimed, he's like, yeah, Seth is more aggressive. He'll like go for it harder. And I think this is where the, the mental side comes into play in a huge way is when you're sprinting at that wall, that rail, that whatever, and you're thinking about, am I going to vault it? Am I going to hurdle it? Am I going to, are my foot placements correct? Are my steps right? the higher level athlete with a lot of confidence and mental game is going to be able to hit that closer to a hundred percent of their max speed. Yeah. And you see a lot of the separation, I think in these competitions is the beginner level athlete isn't going to be able to hit that at a hundred percent speed. They're still at 60 or 70 or 80% speed. Yep. And as we get better, more experienced, you're able to hit all of these different skills at your max output, which is actually 
like that's huge in the technical component and that's huge in the mental component as well. And then the physical component is about making that even bigger, even faster, even higher. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's the aggressiveness, confidence that comes to mind. Um, But then you also have to consider the farther you push it on the aggressiveness level or the speed level, the more likely hypothetically you are to make a mistake. So how, how far are you willing to push that to your max level um, with having a confidence level of I'm not going to make a mistake that, you know, sends me in the 10th place versus second place. So yeah, there, it's an incredibly complex thing, but I don't, I don't feel like, uh, Mish has been competing in speed comps the, uh, that recently, but like the oh. last few times I saw Mish, it was like if he had not made a mistake, he would have won on the speed courses. But he he had just one slip up, uh, like in one yeah. run every time that I saw him compete for a while. Yeah, I I think I noticed that as well. And like Dylan and Brandon is another good example. Um, I think Brandon would probably admit that Dylan was usually better at, better than mm-hmm. him. And mm-hmm. Dylan should win, but Brandon actually beat Dylan several times because I think um, kind of like Seth, Brandon is willing to push the aggressiveness level yeah. um, a little bit farther. Dylan's like a control freak and he would never mess up. Um, maybe he wouldn't go quite as fast sometimes because of it, but Brandon would push that farther and farther. And so, yeah, it's there's just so many factors and it's really – really fascinating to me. This is why I love speed competitions even more than like the skill and the style competitions at this point. I think um, those are cool, but they're also, they're just harder to nail down a good format, I think. And when you're talking about speed runs, it's simple. It's like set a good course and who's the fastest. Yeah. That's setting a good part. Course part is not as easy though, because as you said, fig. <laughs> yeah. It looks more like team Ninja warrior than anything. Yeah, but that not even that because really that could be the winning format just because it is kind of like diluted or simplified for a mainstream audience potentially. I hope not. I mean, it seems like for me, it's so much more interesting to watch athletes doing complex stuff. That's what that was, that's what makes parkour unique, right? It's like there's other people who run and jump, run in straight lines. Um, yeah. There's nobody who has the the nobody. Other, no other community that I've seen that has developed this ability to move with complexity, with speed, um, with intensity, the way that the parkour athletes are now. I mean, it's incredible to look back at what what this looked like. You know, you know. I remember the the first. I think I was at the first competition, maybe the second competition you guys held uh, at the old Denver gym with all the hobos outside. Yeah, the original. Yeah. Which had a lot of Ninja Warrior elements in it, didn't it? That was that was right when that got popular. Yeah, back when it was still kind of cool, and <laughs> people didn't get super jaded that it's a reality show first and foremost, and not yeah. a legit competition. Mm-hmm. And I mean the 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 confidence and the speed which was the athletes move, and the complexity of the courses that people are developing, and the 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 combination of complexity with uh, amplitude, with the size of the things that people are doing. and the force that they're taking and managing and not getting hurt from and yeah it's it's pretty amazing stuff very cool um yeah actually uh 
that's probably a good a good place to sort of uh, to start to finish up here. Um, it's been really interesting, Ryan. It's good to catch up with you. Uh, is there any last things you'd like to share with the audience? Um, I guess just to plug my own stuff. Um, yeah, if you guys are ever in Colorado, come come train with us here in Boulder, Louisville, Denver, Fort Collins. Um, also, we've got a lot of our online content going up at parkwareedu.org. And um, I might as well drop a little bit, uh, another little tidbit here. We are currently developing an app. Um, so we will be trying to build out our online content into an app form that'll be on iOS and Android. And we're also looking at ways to use this app for kind of like a play mode or game mode, which would be augmented or alternate reality where you can essentially geotag a spot and even a challenge outside anywhere in the world, probably starting out with like public parks and um, also indoor, you know, parkour schools and gyms. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll be able to, to set challenges and people can like pull this app up and see where all the challenges are, challenges are in their area, where all the cool spots are. And then they can, you know, click on a video, try the challenge, earn points, badges, unification, um, might even turn into some kind of competition in the future here. Um, but I'm pretty excited about that um, possibility where we've been in development for a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, if all goes well, hopefully we'll see that a little bit later this year. And in which case, um, eventually I could see that being user generated challenges and spots and content from all over the world. So that if I'm traveling in Dublin, Ireland, and I want to know where some cool spots and challenges are next to wherever I'm staying, you just pull this thing up find a couple challenges, go outside, try it, upload my challenge, compare it to other people, um, maybe even build in speed courses and stuff outside as well. So um, I think that could be a pretty innovative thing in the parkour world and maybe even offer a, an alternative way for us to scale parkour and make it more accessible and engaging to people all over, whether you have, whether you're training in parks or at a gym or by yourself or with a group. So um, that's one thing we're working on right now. We do have an amazing mobile app development team that we're partnering with. Um, but if any of the listeners here are in the world of design or coding or um, even, you know, anyone who has an idea on how this app could be even better for everyone, um, hit me up. I'm open to ideas and we can still, you know, change the, the features and the, the functionality of this app right now. So um, let me know if, if anybody has some ideas and I'm happy to talk more. Sounds good, man. Sounds like you got lots of cool stuff. And uh, you didn't mention the Apex Movement Cert, but if anyone was a parkour teacher, um, Apex, your company puts on some great uh, certifications. I haven't got a chance to look at the, um, the 101 or 102, but I have seen uh, bits of the, the falling curriculum that you guys have and the climb up curriculum that you guys have. I highly, highly recommend it. So um, yeah. Ryan and his team have produced some really great stuff, guys. So go check it out and they can fi find it all at parkour.edu and apexmovement.com. Yep. That's it. Cool, man. Thank you very much, Ryan, for being on the show. I can't believe it's been so long. We'll have to do it again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Adios. 
Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.